Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about the Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays in Placentia, California at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. Anyways, that's one of our logos. If you see these black shirts, Safe to Belong is uh, what we want to see happen here at Vox. We don't want to judge. We don't want to do any of that. We just want you to come to know Jesus, the beautiful Jesus, and that's what we're about here at Vox. And if you want to know more about Vox, go online at voxoc.com, and you can uh, read our story. You can uh, uh, see what we're about. And if you're really interested in knowing more about Vox, we'd love for you to sign up for a uh, New to Vox dinner. And that's where uh, we host it at Mike's house. Um, and you can come and find out what we're all about and see what, what's next, what next step for you. But one of the things we love about Vox as well is that we are a place that we want to be safe to talk about anything. And the way we do that is we get to share stories. Uh, how many of you guys have been here for the, for the eight weeks that we've been alive? Pretty fun, right? We've heard stories. We've been encouraged. And this morning we have a story from one of my good friends. Dave Penton's going to come out. Why don't you give him a hand? This is Dave. And Dave has an awesome story that he's going to share with us this morning. And um, take it away, buddy. Thank you. Uh Board. I'm yellow pad. Uh, I'm notorious <laughs> for yellow pads. So um, my name is Dave, and I am uh, an incessant planner. It's what I do professionally. Uh, I organize people and plan out projects to make to bring them to successful completion. I do not do well when I deviate from my predetermined plans. Just ask my wife and kids. I have found that oftentimes my plan takes precedent over everything, including relationships, compassion, and empathy. This has definitely led to conflict in personal relationships over the years. I find myself on a journey currently that had placed me in a situation where there is no way that I can plan out my future. My wife will attest to the fact that there has been one commitment within our marriage that I have held to with steadfast confidence over the years. The fact that we will never, and I do mean never, adopt or foster any children. I had no desire, no motivation, and no plan to ever visit this path for our family. I'd like to share the story that God is currently writing as we speak. My wife has always had a desire to explore foster and or adoption, but I was steadfastly opposed to that as a possibility for our family. We already have four wonderful children, all of which I love dearly, and our house is already quite full. Though my wife constantly reminds me, when we got married, I said that I wanted six children. That number changed after number two, but that's a whole other story. About a year ago, a little boy, who for privacy reasons I need to refer to as T, came into our life. T was only three weeks old at the time and being fostered by Laura's brother's family. She felt drawn to assist her brother and sister-in-law in caring for baby T, and so she committed to watching him on Thursdays every week. The reality was that he was often in our home more than one day a week. Over the course of the next year, our family, including myself, came to accept this little boy as a member of our own extended family, our new little cousin and nephew. Just under a year ago, baby T was reunited with his birth family and was no longer a part of our life, but he still possessed a slice of our heart. Fast forward to this past May when we learned that now two-year-old little T was back in the foster care system and needed a home. 
Laura's brother was the obvious first choice, but he is currently out of work and therefore did not qualify based on county requirements. We huddled together as a family, prayed about it, and decided that God was calling us to pursue bringing T into our family. There was a catch, though. Little T now had an even younger baby sister that we will call N, who also needed a home. This did not change our resolve we were in for both of them. We knew that God was leading us in this direction, and I have found over the years that arguing with God rarely turns out well for me. After a whirlwind two days, the county decided that another family would be a better fit for these two children. We were sad, but we knew that God was in this, and if this was his will, we were okay accepting this as the outcome. Fast forward four weeks to Friday, May 27th, when we received a call from Olive Crest, the foster agency. They asked us if we would still be open to taking these two children. We asked them to give us the weekend to pray about it as a family, but by Saturday morning, we knew collectively that we would say yes. This is where the story starts to get messy. The county process for being certified as a foster family through Olive Crest is laborious to say the least. It takes most families four to seven months to work through the process, but we needed to do it by the end of June. As it turned out, all of the classes that we needed to complete for certification were being offered within the month of June. So by God's grace, it was possible for us to make it happen. We were off on a mad dash to get everything completed by June 30th. Almost immediately, the stuff started to hit the fan, so to speak. We actually began writing it down about three weeks ago because it was almost getting comical. This is just a partial list. My wife, Laura, was hit with a severe bout of anxiety and was not sleeping. I broke my ribs surfing. Three of our four kids came down with hand, foot, mouth disease and had to be quarantined at home. We had to put down our family dog of 12 years on my daughter's eighth birthday. The company I owned was served with a frivolous $450,000 lawsuit. Brooke got stung by a bee, and her foot swelled up for three days to the point where she could hardly walk. Our littlest, JoJo, began having almost nightly nightmares, which is very uncommon for her. During the process of making cookies, our other daughter, Brooke, got her hair caught in the mixer and ripped out a good-sized chunk of hair from her scalp. My son, Josh, broke his surfboard after two waves on one of the best days surfing this summer. Sarah began struggling with panic attacks to the point where her back was seizing up and she was not sleeping. Josh's phone broke and is unusable, which for a high school sophomore, you can imagine, is not a fun time. <laughs> I received my first driving ticket in probably 15 years. I have had marked insomnia over the past month. And this past week, we ended up in the ER with little T. It ended up only being pink eye, but again, we were quarantined to the house. Don't get me wrong, though. It hasn't been all bad. We have had incredible moments where God has met us through this month as well. Immediately following Laura's bout with anxiety, she was reading in her devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. The first line of the reading from May 30th was, quote, Supposing God tells you to do something which is an enormous test to your common sense, end quote. It went on to encourage her that sometimes God calls us to something that is far beyond what we feel is humanly possible, but to rely on him as he directs our path. 
I've been reading through Barry Corey's book entitled Love Kindness, and one of the chapters shared the story of Barry's angst and struggle with knowing if he was truly following God's will as he moved his family from Boston to Los Angeles for work. He, he struggled with knowing if this was something that was he was doing of his own selfish ambition and how his family would suffer for his decision. I, too, have struggled with something similar. How will bringing these two foster children affect my four children, especially since Laura and I will need to devote an inordinate amount of time to these children initially to make them feel welcome? Many foster children have experienced trauma in their lives, and how will this translate within our very stable home? We learned during our training that all of the children within the Olive Crest system have special needs. Just this week, I have started to wrestle with the very real possibility that if we adopt these two kids, one or both of them may end up living with Laura and I forever. Don't get me wrong, I love my kids, but I also love my wife and I love to spend time with her alone. The very real possibility that this may be a fleeting reality has challenged my planner personality these past few days. I'm learning that God is walking with us through this process. Even though I cannot plan what will come next, I am forced to look back on the faithfulness that God has shown us throughout this process. I'm holding fast to the fact that God, time and time again, has confirmed that we are walking the path that he has laid out for us. I'm reminded of a passage from the book of Psalms that says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. A lamp is not a a floodlight. It does not illuminate the entire road ahead. It simply shows me where my next footstep will land and not much further. As a man who makes a living planning everything out, this is a challenging place that I find myself. I continue to look back at how God has met me throughout this journey every time I have needed encouragement and continue to move forward one step at a time. Awesome. Thank you. That was great. Thanks. I love this. I love that we get to share stories. I love that we get to hear these stories. Um, wow. <laughs> uh, I've seen these guys really be committed to... Oh, dang. <laughs> I've seen these guys really just be committed to um, doing whatever God has called them to do. And it's been such an encouragement. And we're all in process somehow, some, some way, some place. And that's what we love about this place is that you can come here and wrestle with those things. And we want to hear those stories. We want Jesus to, to be the one to, um, to do that for you. And um, that's why we're here. We, just, we want you to know that we're all in process and this place is, is a safe place for you. So what we're going to do now is we're going to transition a little bit into music. And um, this is a place where we give you permission, permission to sit and not participate permission to raise your hands, to sing loud, to, to do whatever you need to do. Um, if you want to take a nap, go for it. You know, music is great enough to kind of put you to sleep sometimes, <laughs> but uh, permission to do what you need to do um, as we uh, move on into, into music. So thank you for being here. I'm glad that you're here. And uh, if you have any questions, come seek us out. We're here to help you out. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Jesus, we are grateful that you have um, made a place in your church. And here, especially at Vox, that we are safe to belong. 
Lord, I ask that today um, you would just remind us of your kingdom in its entirety, that you would um, work in our hearts and woo us the way that um, you love people. Show us what that means and um, show us how to do it. I thank you so much um, for just the honor to um, lead us all in, in this time, and I ask that um, this would be the start of so many conversations for us to grow together and um, make you beautiful to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, I'm gonna, I gotta tell you guys a story. Uh, many of you know me because um, I was on Mike's podcast, and I'm sorry I keep going like this. Oh, thank you. That's probably my husband. Um, <laughs> Um, and on that podcast, I, was, I did a Women in Ministry one, and then I also did one um, about grief and loss, and I shared a story about um, the birth of our second son. And um, so today I'm actually going to share a story about the birth of our first son. And he's five and a half. His name's Chip. And um, we sort of got pregnant, like, oh, whoops, we're pregnant. Um, we had a goal that, like, at five years we would talk about being pregnant, and then we got pregnant um, when we were married for a year and a half. And I remember when I got pregnant, I just like looked at my husband, and I'm like, how did this happen? And he looks at me, he's like, you're, really? <laughs> really? And so the whole pregnancy was kind of marked by that, right? Like I, I didn't read any books. I wasn't prepared. I really didn't know what to think of the whole thing. And so um, right around nine months, actually the day before my due date, my mom says to me, well, how are you feeling? I said, well, you know, I just... I'm really scared. I'm really um, nervous. She said, what, what are you nervous about? And I said, well, I, I'm worried that I'm going to go into labor and I'm not going to know it. She's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, what? I'm like, you know, like you'll just be driving in the car and like, whoops, there's the baby. She's like, okay, no, it's not, it's not going to happen. You will, you will know. You'll definitely know. And the doctor said, oh, he's going to be fine. You know, you're going to be, most women go into labor where they feel the safest and secure. Your body, you're usually like um, maybe in the middle of the night. You know, it's just calm. It's comfortable. You feel really calm. And so your body releases oxytocin and you just go into labor. And so um, I went into labor at noon in Target. And I don't know what that says about me as a person. I don't really want to know. And so um, I'm in Target, and I'm in labor, and I'm like, Mom, this, you were right. This hurts. And she's like, what? And it's just all of a sudden, it was very fast. And so my husband comes home from work, and we head straight to the hospital. And so we're in the hospital. By the time I get there, contractions are about two minutes apart, and I feel like I'm going to die. I'm like, this is it. I'm going to die. I hate labor. Why would anyone do this? This is the worst. Get me out. And the nurse is like, hi, hi, can I ask you some questions? I'm like, what? So she goes to my husband first. He answers them all. I mean, just the basics. Name, age, date of birth, the whole thing. Then it's my turn. What's your name? And I'm like, <gasps> a minute apart. I mean, I can't even breathe. And I say, and my husband chimes in. He's like, can I answer these for her? And the nurse is like, no. No, I don't know if you're lying. OK, it's fine. I don't, actually don't care if he lies right now. <laughs> so she starts going on, and she's asking me the basics. She's sitting there typing. She's got her glasses on. It's very official. I'm over here dying. And she's like, uh, what's your highest level of education? I'm like, oh, it's, I, I, I have my master's. And she stops typing. She pulls her glasses down, looks over at my husband, and goes, people with their master's always have to say they have it. I'm like, really? <laughs> you just asked me. I'm like, 
different. Uh, Bonnie, who's not in labor, like I would have said, like you've got to be kidding me. But for whatever reason, I don't know if it's just um, like a stage of pain and rage that I get to, but I get very calm, very calm. And my husband even said he's like, "Wow, that you were actually enjoyable in that process." Like I wasn't expecting that, and so I just took the high road. Just okay, that was crazy, but we'll just move on. I can't even talk anyway, so I just forget it. So she keeps asking these questions, and um, <clears throat> we're going on about this. Labor's progressing as it does. And she says to me, um, so what's your birth plan? I'm like, what? She's like, you know, your birth plan, the thing that you wrote out and you planned. And, you, and I'm like, I didn't do homework, okay? I didn't even know this was happening. I just showed up here. She's like, well, what is it? Did you bring a, bring a paper? I'm like, no, listen up. My birth plan is to not be pregnant. The plan is to get the baby out. That's the plan. And again, she looks over at my husband, and she's like, okay. Like, this is not happening. So uh, I uh, continued down, and uh, my husband and I had agreed beforehand we weren't going to get an epidural because, again, I thought I wouldn't know I was in labor. So now that I'm there, I'm like, get me the epidural and get it now. So the guy comes in, and he's like, hey, how's everyone doing? Before I can even answer, the, my favorite person, the nurse, she chimes in. Oh, you know what? He is doing so good. They don't make husbands like him anymore. He is the best coach. He is so loved. On and on and on about the husband. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm doing well. Thank you so, so much. And um, the anesthesiologist introduces, you know, to my husband. My husband's like sort of shifty eyes between me and the nurse, like, should I say hi or should I just like stay in the background? Like, when is this gonna explode? And so um, we're sitting there and he's, okay, I need you to lean over. Contractions are 30 seconds apart. I need you to hold your breath while I do this and you cannot move. I'm like, okay, okay. He's like, okay, here we go. I'm holding my breath, I'm ready. He's putting the needle in. Right when he's putting the needle in, nurse over here chimes in. Oh, hey, why were you late? You know, you doesn't usually take that long to get up here. I feel him pull back. He's like, oh, gosh, glad you asked. I'm like, really, people? Can we have this discussion in two minutes? Two minutes. He says, oh, well, um, my computer's broken. I'm having a lot of trouble with it. So I was like troubleshooting. So it maybe took me a while to get up here. And nurse over here, because she knows our entire history, goes, oh, you know what? You should bring it up here later. Her husband works for Apple. They're not doing anything. He could help you. I'm like, are you serious? And my husband looks at me and he looks at her and he goes, uh, I think you should just make a genius bar appointment. <laughs> That's your best bet. Epidur grows in, finally nurse says to me, so is there anything I can get for you? Yeah, um, I'm really hungry actually. I could use a sandwich, like anything, I'll take anything. Oh, you know what? I knew I forgot to read that to you. You actually can't eat now. Sorry, you're gonna have to wait. I'm like, what? Yeah, anyway, shift change, bye. I'm like, oh my gosh, never come in my room again. I couldn't stand her. And part of it was that um, she was doing her job. But here's the real kicker of the story. The whole pregnancy, when you're pregnant, people kind of treat you up here, right? You get foot rubs, you get back rubs, you get extra donuts. I mean, it's like whatever she needs, you just give it to her. You just hand it to her. Like we would be making dinner, and husband would come home and be like, where's the dinner? And I'm like, ah, oh, bummer news, I ate the whole pizza. <laughs> and he'd be like, okay, okay. 
And he'd go to In-N-Out and then like he'd get home and I'm like, oh, is that my milkshake? It's like, sure, sure. <laughs> so you're just sort of used, and people are opening doors for you. They're, I mean, the whole thing. And because of that, the husband sort of treated more down here. I mean, it's not malicious, there's no intent there. It's just like an extra privileged special care up here. And um, so when that nurse sort of leveled the playing field, I mean, she brought my husband up to the same level. She was basically saying like, look, sweetie, this, you, it took two to tango to get here, and it's gonna be that way forever for the rest of your parenting um, journey. And so she really made us equals, but it just didn't feel good. It didn't feel good at all. I mean, and granted, her delivery was terrible, her timing was not the best timing. But I think back on that situation and I think about that because when you're used to being treated up here and someone else is by default down here because that's the way things work. If someone's on top, then someone's on bottom. So if you're used to be treated here and someone's brought up to your equal, equality doesn't always feel good. Sometimes equality feels threatening. Feels like someone's trying to take something away from you if you're the one on top. We're camping out in Luke 7 today. If you guys have your Bible, you can turn there. It's Luke 7, 36 through 50. And um, if you guys attend Vox regularly, you've actually, Mike's already preached on this. So I'm sure he was delighted when he said, oh, what are you going to preach on? And I said, oh, I'm going to do this passage. You've already done it, but I'm just going to do it differently. So this might be the last time you see me, so why not? Um, and uh, it's the story of this woman, and she walks into a dinner party that the Pharisees are having and Jesus is attending, and she walks in and she starts doing kind of what uh, we would see as crazy behavior. She uh, washes his feet, she anoints his head with oil, but we're looking at it from a different perspective. Um, so let's start, 36. Verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. The word reclining here actually means to relax. It's, it's a literal kind of like laying down and reclining. Anytime you see that word in relation to a dinner in, in scripture, what I want you to picture is that this is like a five, six, seven course meal. It's a long endeavor. Okay, lots of food, lots of wine, lots of conversation, lots of important people. So the only members of society that are having these type of parties are the elite. They're the privileged members. They are wealthy, they are on top, and that's true for society today. We live in a society where sometimes things are structured to support a certain level of people. Things are not structured to support people down here. And this was true for them as well. And so Jesus is at a party of somebody who is up here. <clears throat> Verse 37. A woman in town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. So historically at these parties, uh, the doors to the buildings were left open. And this was done as a status symbol. They wanted, there was a clear definition here. These are the group of people who are in and the rest of you are out. And we're opening our doors so that you can see what we're talking about. You get to hear our wisdom. You get to see what we're doing. And occasionally, if we have food left, we're going to throw you scraps of food. So the privileged are in there. They're having their party. They're talking about whatever it is they're talking about for a long duration of time. 
And then we have the underprivileged, the marginalized, the oppressed, and they are sitting outside, and they're listening, and they're waiting for scraps of food. So for this woman to walk in was absolutely uncommon, but of course she knew about it because the whole town did. Those who weren't invited are sitting outside. They're waiting, wondering what it's like to be inside those doors. Verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. As one does, right? <laughs> no, that's crazy. Can you, can you imagine that for a minute? Now, scripture doesn't tell us what sinful woman means, but from what we know, we're pretty sure she's a prostitute. So she's a prostitute, she's a, like a low member of society, and she's a woman. So for her to come in there and even touch Jesus is completely inappropriate. So when you hear this story normally, you probably hear one of two things. First thing, she took something very precious to her, the alabaster jar, this like perfume oil jar that was worth a lot of money, and she sacrificed it to Jesus. This is true. This is absolutely true. She didn't have any money. She could have sold that, and she could have gotten herself food, and she could have gotten herself off the street at least for a little bit. She sacrificed, she gave it to Jesus. The other thing you hear, the second probably like motif you hear from this story, is that Jesus accepted her as she was. That he welcomed her in, regardless of how inappropriate her actions were. He said, you're welcome here. And then she went about her way. Both of these things are 100% true about this story. But I don't want to stop there. I don't want to stop in a place where we worship a Jesus who accepts people as marginalized and then leaves it that way. I don't think that's true. I don't see that truth in scripture. I don't see that truth in Jesus and the way he works in the world. I don't see a Jesus who is okay with the privileged and marginalized of society and leaving it there. I see a Jesus who actually is so not okay with it, he does everything he can to dismantle people that are privileged and to bring equality so that those that are oppressed that we are all welcome. And that only happens if we see what she's doing through a different light. <clears throat> In the Old Testament, there's um, someone called the high priest. The high priest um, was a role that was, no one chose, really, like God chose you is what it was thought. And um, he had two roles in society. The first role is he was the mediator between God and his people. So anytime um, he would go into the temple and he would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people and God would then forgive them for their sins. If God wanted to say something, he would do it through the high priest. He was the only one that was allowed sort of in the inner part of the temple because it was very holy. The second role that he had is he was the mediator, the peacekeeper, the great equalizer between members of society. He made sure that everyone was treated with respect and dignity he sort of tried to even out these hierarchies that we see. So that was his second role. And if you look in the Old Testament, Leviticus 8 and 9 and Exodus 29, you will see the different ceremonies that happen to anoint a high priest. It's very specific, very specific. And if you were a Pharisee, you would absolutely know what this ritual was. The person who was being anointed as the high priest, or like put into office, as we might think of it, um, he would be washed with water, completely washed. And from that moment on, every time he entered into the temple to come before God, his feet would be washed. 
He would also be anointed with oil, and then he would be given um, special clothing to wear. And so when I read this story, and when I look back at the Old Testament, I see that what this woman is doing is strikingly similar to what someone would do to anoint a high priest. And actually later on, verses 44 through 47, Jesus actually calls out the Pharisees for not doing this. He says, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on me. See, what I think this woman is doing is I think she is so tired of being down here, of being on the outside, and she saw a place for herself in Jesus. And she came in and she's declaring him through these actions for all to see that he is the high priest, that he is the great equalizer, and what a better place to do it in. She does it smack dab in the middle of this party where there are people who are privileged and think that she is nothing, and she says no. My voice belongs here. I have a part in this conversation. Because Jesus, he doesn't accept the way that society does it. See, when Jesus is the high priest, he is the mediator. We see that on the cross. But he also just doesn't settle for the status quo. He's not okay that we live in a society and that they lived in a society where people are continually on top and others are continually on bottom. He wants to level the playing field. Jesus is the great equalizer, and that's the good news. The good news is that we are all welcome. He didn't accept that woman because he's on a missions trip or because it's a charity or because it's his good act that he did for the day. He accepted her because he accepted her into the kingdom. He accepted her because he said, you have a place here with these people. We all have a place with each other. That's why he accepted her. So when I see her, I, uh, I see her bravery. I see her courage. She knew she didn't belong there, but she went in anyway. I know I've been in situations where I've been so desperate that I just don't care anymore. I don't care if you say I don't belong. I need a place. And she said, I see that in you, Jesus. I see that there. And she went in, and she declared that, and he welcomed her and said, yes, it is true. This same reason is um, why many of you are here. I know there are a lot of you that don't feel like you fit in. I think Vox is probably the first time you felt welcomed. It took a lot of courage for you to get out of bed, maybe every day. It takes a lot of courage for you to walk through that door. On behalf of the church, I want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that is how you've been presented, Jesus. I'm sorry that the great equalizer hasn't been a part of the equation for you. It breaks my heart. But I want you to know I see you. We hear you. That bravery is not lost on us. You have a place here. You are right. There is a place for you in Jesus. Jesus doesn't care what society says about you. He welcomes you. And you are home in him.
But then there are some of us who don't understand that, and that's okay. We're not expected There's a, to know things that we don't have experiences of. But the challenge for us is to not settle for not knowing, and the challenge for us is to not settle for not understanding, and the challenge for us is to dig deep. See, there are many of us who act like the Pharisees, and sometimes we don't even mean to. But just the sheer fact of the color of our skin, the neighborhood we're born in, our sexual orientation, society has placed us up here, and we walk through life with that. The hard truth is that we don't know. Some of us don't know, me included, me included, what it is like to be discriminated because of the color of my skin. I have no idea. And some of us don't know what it's like to be excluded from God's kingdom or your own family because of your sexual orientation. I don't know what that's like. And some of us don't know what it's like to be labeled a name or called a name or called a terrorist because of the way you dress or the things you believe or the people that you hang out with or from what country your parents were from. We don't know what that's like, but it happens every single day to people around us. These people, they're in our workplaces, they're in our neighborhoods, they're in our churches. We live in a society where these hierarchies are set up and they are real and they are true. But we are called to be the peacekeepers. We are called to be the great equalizers. We are called to not settle for that. And for some of us, that's gonna take being able to forgive. We're gonna need to forgive other people who have put us down. We need to forgive other people for being ignorant of what it feels like, and we're going to have to work really hard at reconciliation. And for some of us, we're going to have to really dig deep. We're going to have to learn to listen and listen good before we say anything. We're going to have to learn to love out of our comfort zones, to open our arms so wide, open our homes and open our tables and say, you are welcome in this house, you are welcome in my family, you are welcome in my community. We have to take a long look inward. It requires that we learn what privilege looks like, that we condemn it when we say it, and we say, hey, no more. The buck stops here. You see, the way that Jesus loved this woman in this passage is how he loves all the time. He loves through touch, close proximity, community, relationships, and consistency. And that's how we are to love. I'm going to warn you about something. I've been doing a little bit of work here and there with uh, refugees, with members of um, the Muslim community, and with the homosexual community. I've been trying to hear their stories. You know, we sit and we, um, we hear things on the news all the time. I mean, this week alone, I lost count of the violence and the hatred. But what I do hear is I hear people saying, please listen, please listen to what it feels like for me. And my gut instinct, and I think probably some of your gut instinct, is that we hear it and we don't really know and that's unfamiliar and so we'd rather not touch it. But let me tell you something, when you invite people into your home, you invite people to have lunch with you, and you look at them in the eye and you say, what is life like in your shoes? 
completely changes the narrative. Because it's no longer a TV screen. It's no longer someone in a different state. It's no longer not your problem. You're involved now. These are real people. They've got real stories. They've got real emotions. And it changes the narrative. It changes what you think about them. It changes how you act. And in the best way possible, it changes who your friends are. It does. Your community becomes wider. The kingdom of God actually starts looking like the kingdom of God, right? All made in his image. All welcomed. But what I'm going to warn you about is this doesn't go over well. People don't like it. People do not like their privilege being called into question. We like our security. We like our safety. And we like to be on top. That's just the hard truth of it. Because when someone's used to being on top, equality doesn't feel like equality. It feels like oppression. And so the words that you will hear when you do this, when you start to love people outside of your comfort zones, when you start to welcome people in, is you will hear, we do not believe you. We do not stand by you. You are wrong. These people, they have an agenda. They are here to threaten us. We do not want them. They need to leave, and you need to leave. You are no longer welcome here. But let me tell you something. From my experience, when you hear those things, and you are being insulted just the way Jesus did because of the way that you are loving, and because of the way that your doors are open wide, and the kingdom of God is expanding, and you are seeing people in your life know Jesus, and you are seeing making Jesus beautiful across so many different areas of society and hierarchies, and you see the playing field being leveled, you are doing the right thing. You are on the right track when you hear those things. Um, I had a conversation with a Muslim friend a few weeks ago. And uh, I said to her, what is it like to be a Muslim? And um, I'm just also going to say, um, in all these conversations, I just right up front just tell people I know what I'm talking about. They just say, um, look, I, I have zero clue what I'm saying, so I'm just going to ask you questions, and please tell me if they're offensive. And they never are. People love to have questions asked about them. No one does it. I said, what is life like for you right now? And you know what she told me? She said, um, she said every time there's an attack, probably going to lose it. Apologize in advance. But I'm not coming back anyway, so what do you care? Um, <laughs> she said, every time there's an attack, um, my husband, me, and my kids, we stay inside for a few days. We don't go out. And I said, you don't, you don't go out? She said, no. If I, um, if I need something, if I need to go to the grocery store for milk, or whatever it is, um, she said, I actually have one friend who's, who's Christian, and she comes and she does it with me. She walks alongside me. She doesn't make me travel that path alone. And she's Christian, and she's white, and she stands next to me, and she says, in solidarity, you have a place here. We are not going to accept the fact that some people will call you names, some people will shut you out and put you down because of one group. That's not representative of the whole. And so she stands in the gap, and she says no. People feel like that, like my friend, every day. And no one should. 
everyone should love the way that her friend does. So church, it's up to us. Okay, all the great movements, every time the kingdom has moved and made change and brought about transformation, it always takes place in the relationship in the context of community and grassroots movements. It's not these huge things. You don't need to, you know, I don't know, put on a conference, build an app, write a book. You don't need to do that. You just open your door. You leave a place at the table. You make extra food. You say hi to someone. That's where it starts. It starts with being a good neighbor. It starts looking inside, thanking God for what you have, but asking what you can do. It starts standing up for the oppressed. And when people start making generalizations about people, to say, wait a minute, we don't know their story. That's where it starts, because that's the good news. We serve a Jesus who is the great equalizer. We serve a Jesus who cares about dismantling hierarchy society, and he cares about each and every one of our stories. Why do you think he chose the table? He chose the table because this is the place that we are equal. This is the place where we all belong. And so our challenge is that may our tables at home be representative of the same thing, that everyone is welcome. We are all in this together, and the kingdom of God, it just doesn't play by those rules. So I think it's only fitting that we take communion. Um, I want to say again, as always, permissions and freedom allowed. You don't have to take communion, but you are all welcome. There's no prerequisites here. The communion stations are here, and the gluten-free one is over there. I have to say that. Um, I was like, don't forget the gluten-free. I'm gluten-free, so I, I appreciate it. Um, but, um, gosh, you know what? I hear this, and um, I'm in need of a confession. I know I haven't loved as well as I could have. Man, I really care a lot about my safety and security. In fact, I find myself worrying about it. I don't like that. I don't like that part of myself. And so I'm trying, but I know I can do more. And so if you're willing, uh, they're going to put some confessions up here on the screen. And um, I was hoping we could all stand up together as a community and we can say these confessions. The band will come up, lead us in worship, and you can take communion as you want. So if you'll please stand. We confess that we see people in our neighborhoods, at the workplace, or in our churches who are different than us, and we purposefully turn the other way. We confess that we protect our comforts and our safety before anything else, and in doing so, we are part of the problem. We confess that we keep tragedy at arm's length. We have stopped bringing the good news to people because we have filled up our schedules with so many activities, the doors to our homes stay closed. We find it easier to go about our lives than to stop and be peacemakers. And in doing so, we are part of the problem. We confess that we listen to the media more than actual human beings. We turn on our televisions to fill our houses 
instead of the stories, emotions, and experiences of people all around us. We confess that we keep our blinders on and in fear of ridicule, and in doing so, we are part of the problem. And Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Okay, Vox, I'm just going to leave you with the benediction. Thank you so much for sharing your Sunday with us. I'm going to hold out your hands and receive this. <clears throat> Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is error, the truth. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O God, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console others, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.